Welcome to Conversations from the Leading Edge, a monthly radio show and podcast featuring interviews about extraordinary advances in the area of peace and conflict studies happening at or around Columbia University. Each month, we feature interviews with scientists and thought leaders who are conducting groundbreaking work aimed at managing conflict constructively and sustaining peace both locally and globally. My name is Peter T. Coleman, and I'm coming to you from the studios of WKCR at Columbia University. The show is sponsored by AC4, the Advanced Consortium on Cooperation, Conflict, and Complexity at the Earth Institute at Columbia University. And now for today's show. This is Meredith Smith, host of today's show, excited to have a conversation with Kathleen Goodling, an alumni of the AC4 Fellowship Program. Kathleen is a doctoral student in curriculum and teaching at Columbia in Teachers College, and she does research and writes on cultural um, research and art education, and particularly on topics of place-based pedagogy and in adre- using this to address historical violence. She has um, research on the state of exception in emergency politics and also the use of aesthetic, narrative, and technological tools in addressing history and memory in communities affected by violence. And this is kind of a mouthful, but I'm going to read the title of Kathleen's dissertation. It's called, This Must Be the Place, Designing of Places of Exception as Places of Learning. It's a multi-case study on places of state-sanctioned incarceration that have become places for public learning. Um, So, Kathleen, let's start out um, with hearing what drew you to Teachers College and um, what you were looking forward to back then (laughs) when you started, I think um, you said seven years ago, right? Yes, seven long years ago, I left my position as a public school teacher in the East San Francisco Bay Area. I was a 10th grade English teacher for most of my 20s, so um, barely looked older than my students, and I taught... um, yeah, language arts in a poetry class. And I- in the 10th grade English classes in particular, I was required to teach um, a lot of Holocaust literature. It was just part of the curriculum in California. So I taught um, Art Spiegelman's Mouse and Ellie Wiesel's Night. Such a great story. Yeah, yeah and Mouse is such powerful writing. And it's such an unusual format, I think. I think young people really were very responsive to the graphic novel format. So um, I, I was a teacher, and I got very interested in in how do you teach um, almost these unspeakable acts of mass violence? Um, how do you help young people engage with um, mass violence? And then, of course, there was violences that were happening all the time in the local community. I mean, there were students that died in gang violence and there were students who fought on the um in the area of around the school and within the school and um and in fact in the community in which i taught a transgendered a young woman named gwen araha was um was murdered a, a couple of years before i was employed at the school and 
you could kind of see how these kind of murders um, reverberated um, still in this community. So I ended up um, doing quite a lot of teaching around not only the violence that happened during World War II in the concentration camps, but also um, the kinds of violence that was being carried out day to day in the school um, and kind of using literature to, to enter into those conversations. So um, that's kind of where I was at intellectually. And uh, during the economic crises, I was pink slipped and I <laughs> was pretty... I don't know, I'd like most public school teachers, pretty frustrated with the economic conditions of schooling and um, applied to grad school in New York and 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 kind of left my position as a teacher. And um, so I'm not no longer in the classroom, but I um, am one layer, rem one step removed almost. I just, I do research now um, on teaching and learning. And you're still, or you brought those questions of how to address those violent acts that were reverberating within the, the community, within the classroom that you were teaching, but also historical uh, situations like the Holocaust. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. So those were kind of very early questions, and they've since refined quite a bit. But absolutely, those were the reasons why I came to yeah work on my doctorate. And I, it's a really, like, I can't tell you, it's a luxury, I mean to be able to spend mul multiple years doing an inquiry. Uh, people who are full-time teachers, <laughs> they don't have that luxury at all. So it's it's been a blessing, yeah. What are some um, ways that the question has changed? I'm wondering, kind of some surprises that you didn't expect. Yeah, I think um, for a long time I was really interested in looking at curriculum in a very conventional way. So what are teachers doing in the classroom to teach texts like Elie Wiesel's Night? What kind of questions are they posing to students? What do the students say? What are the dialogues they have? What what do they find disruptive and what do they find terrifying? What, what do they find banal? So all of those kind of classroom-based questions were, I thought we were going to be the focus of my research. And what happened was I became very interested in the role of place in teaching. And um, I no longer was in, as interested in the idea of pedagogy happening only in K through 12 settings, but in fact, place itself could be the teacher. Um, and, and they can learn uh, and the, the place facilitates the comprehension. Uh, so that, that is a very, that was a actually fairly big shift <laughs> in my thinking, yeah. Yeah, it sounds like you were already, you, you brought in a focus on the arts and using art education to address some difficult histories and violence. And um, yeah, how, when you say both place and immersion, you know, I think I kind of assume that I know what you mean by it, but you know, what do you mean by, um, let's first, I think, place-based. You know, you mentioned the teacher as a place, um, and then you're also talking about um, a place itself and how that changed while you were here in your studies. So, um, yeah, can you unpack that a bit for us? What is, what is place-based uh, learning for you? Sure, and um, I should 
just because I, if I'm going to be a good academic, I should differentiate the kind of ways I'm talking about place versus what's pretty um, generally accepted, and at least in educational scholarship, about what is place-based learning. I mean, place-based learning, I'm sure a lot of um, people went to, like, the local historical site when they were in high school or middle school, or um, their teachers took them to the local creek, and they did, a, you know, took samples of the soil and the water. I mean, that's um, uh, the standard definition of place-based education is is kind of this use of the local resources, whether it be na natural resources or um, or local museum sites, and so the bringing students from a classroom into these places and it's 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 yeah it's the kind of idea that you would educate from the local kind of like a the typical field trip in a way mm -hmm. yeah uh field trips or um or it would be any kind of like uh, i hate to say this lesson plans that would be developed like when you visit like this creek like what are three things that you know? You know what I mean? So it's it's a, a very, like, it's about bringing students from the classroom to an, a local site. But uh, I think, um, for me, what's really missing from that conversation is, you know, not so much how we facilitate these encounters in place, but uh, through, like, lesson plans or activities, but how the simple act of walking through and being in a place is a form of learning. So um, there's a difference there, I think, in how I'm thinking about place-based pedagogy. Um, and this is not my idea. This comes from a um, professor, actually, who's here in New York City. She teaches at the New School. Her name's Elizabeth Ellsworth. Mm -hmm. And she uh, wrote this really wonderful book called Places of Learning. And it is all about that, exactly what it means to be in a place like, uh, she writes a lot about Maya Lin's Vietnam War Memorial and how these places are designed such that when you enter them, there is really a, um, she says it acts as a transitional object, which is from psycho, psychoanalytic theory, but it really helps people um, have a psychic shift simply by moving through space and place. So um, yeah, I definitely, found so much inspiration in her her work um what is uh, a place of exception are memorials places of exception yeah so um a, a place of exception is a place where uh, essentially the state has sanctioned uh an incarceration of either its own citizens or the citizens of other countries <laughs> and um it's borrowed from this idea of a state of exception, which is um, a, a concept that this German legal philosopher named Carl Schmitt developed in the 1920s. And when he was talking about a state of exception, he was talking about when the state has some sort of security threat. Um, whoever is in power, the head of the state, is allowed to make an exception into the, what is the normal legal order, and they can institute whatever exceptions they want to protect the security of the state. And I think, um, I think all of us who, uh, who are Americans, especially, we understand what a state of exception is, because you know essentially we've been living in one since 9/11, uh, 
uh, that whatever the Bush administ- the policies enacted by the Bush administration in particular, like the Patriot Act, the ability to surveil citizens, all of these things are exceptions to uh, constitutional law, um, because and which are considered acceptable because we are in a state of terror, quote unquote. So um, a place of exception, in my thinking, are these places um, where the state of exception is the most extreme. It's essentially the concentration camp and the prisons that are sequester anyone who is considered a threat to the state. So, um, yeah, that, that is a place of exception in my definition. So sometimes they're... Um, they're, they're virtual or cyber spaces, but also it sounds like um, have have you focused on particular sites or w- how is your your research on it organized? Yeah, so I'm um, I'm looking at kind of two states of exception in American history. I think the current kind of post 9/11 climate as a state of exception, and then what happened after the bombing of Pearl Harbor um, in World War II. Um, the kind of reactions that were taken by the government against Japanese Americans. And so um, these two states of exception, I'm looking, how are they, how did they materialize in places? So I'm studying kind of these um, Guantanamo as a place of exception. And then a Japanese incarceration site in very rural California called Tulu Lake. And it became a National Historic Site in 2008. And that is my other place of exception that I'm studying. Mm. So is Guantanamo, um, just to make sure I'm understanding how you're defining this, is that also a historically, uh, identified as a historically historic site? Well, no, because, right, it's... um, It's operating. It's still operating, so it's... uh, it's a currently well. <laughs> it's still well on its uh, in its operations. So exactly. So looking at a place of exception that is uh, contemporary, mm-hmm. and then looking at a place of exception that has long ago, many decades, um, disappeared from the landscape, um, but has been thankfully our government has recognized that it's an important site to our national story, and they um, designated it. A national monument, just like you would designate Yosemite or um, Pearl Harbor. So uh, you know, it's it's part of the National Registry of Historic Places. So um, it was definitely an act by our government to recognize. Oh yeah, this was wrong. We screwed up. We're gonna make this. We're gonna make this into a site for the public to visit. Yeah. Okay. And um, wow. So there's a lot of these sites. Why you selected that one? Sure. That's a really, that's a really great question um, about why select this one. So, um, yeah, there was. Um, so I should at Tulu Lake, which is in very rural, very, very, very rural Northern California. It's almost on the Oregon border. Um, there was a concentration camp that held almost twenty thousand people, about eighteen thousand Japanese Americans, who were. Um, out of a a larger population of about 110,000 who were living on the West Coast right when the Japanese Axis power bombed Pearl Harbor. And F. Franklin Roosevelt decided that um, 
the Japanese were a military threat to the West Coast. And within a very, very short time, we're talking about a matter of weeks, um, put out an executive order that demanded that everyone living within this zone on the Western United States, every Jap person of Japanese ancestry, would have to report to the site. And they had no idea what was going to happen to them. But they put up flyers in all the neighborhoods, Japanese-American neighborhoods in Los Angeles, Sacramento, Oregon, um, Portland, Oregon, Seattle, everywhere. And um, they had to sell all of their stores, all of their livelihood, and report to these, like, as these centers where they were assembled and then eventually were deported to these concentration camps that they built very hastily. And they're essentially like military-style concentration camps, like build like barracks. And this particular place, Tulu Lake, yeah, held about 18,000 people. So it was like a small city. And um, it was just erected very, very quickly. Um, with, and I would say, you know, within a matter of months, really. And um, held all this population. Um, Stories that um, you don't hear about what was happening in the U.S. during. <laughs> well, yeah. I know. It's one of the big remarks I get in my research is that people say, oh, I never learned about this in school. This was not part of my high school curriculum. You, you hear that a lot. And it's just because it isn't. I mean, the fact that our government incarcerated a very large popula ethnic population that was very assimilated, like Americans, mm -hmm. Um, during World War II, I think is like a very shocking thing for a lot of people because we focus, we, again, we do focus a lot on the death camps and what happened and America being the liberator, the hero. Mm -hmm. So this idea that we did this to our own citizens That's during the war. Time. Yeah, yeah, it's, I think a very jarring way to see this World War II, I think, because World War II is always positioned as like this very patriotic, heroic war, right? Mm -hmm. Um so yeah, no, and, and you asked why I picked Tulu Lake of, um, versus any other site. So there were 10 of these concentration camps that operated for about three to, s I would say three to four years during World War II before they were shuttered and then they sent everyone back home <laughs> to there, you know, which was disastrous, as you can imagine. Like you imprison everyone and then you're like, bye, see you. Like, <laughs> this happened. Yeah, no, don't worry about it. Like, you're fine. You can go home. Um, but there's so there's ten, and they're they're they. You can go and like visit them, and only um, three are actual historic sites that the government has like recognized. But um, they're very stark and very stark places. Um, so when you you said that they are disappeared in yes. a way, but so the the structure is still there? in most cases. Yeah, they dismantled all of the barracks. And they were used for, repurposed in some way, and I can talk more about that later. But um, yeah, essentially, um, and some buildings do remain, which is part of the very interesting part of these sites, is that they remained. Um, but Tulu Lake in particular is a very, um, is a particular site of interest as a, as a place of exception because, uh, and not many people know this, so not many people know that we incarcerated 110,000 Japanese Americans during the war, A. And then B, there's another layer to this history, which is that the U.S. government, <laughs> I laugh only because it really is absurd, um, issued a questionnaire to all of this prison population that asked them to um, declare their loyalty to the United States, to um, sign up for the military, and then um, reject the emperor of Japan, whatever that means, really, like whatever. It, it was a very confusing questionnaire. 
And the people who answered no on these questionnaires were taken out from the prison camps they were already at. And then they were kind of shuttled, like shuttle shuffled to this Tulu Lake site. So it's a very complicated place because it existed as a prison camp. Um, It had about a very large prison population, 18,000, before this questionnaire. And then after this questionnaire, the prison population that was there was like taken out and then replaced by all of these new prisoners who refused to declare their loyalty to the U.S. or didn't answer the questionnaire in the way or didn't just for a variety of reasons ended up in this place. So it, it was a camp of about 18,000 uh, prisoners who were there for a very particular reason, which is that they dissented. They dissented the, uh, the U.S. government. And... Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. They re- there was a real refusal. So it was a real, like, it was a camp of, like, a huge political dissonance. Like, and it's so interesting because no one wants to talk about that either. Everybody wants to, uh, even among the Japanese-American community, they want to s- see themselves as, we're loyal citizens. But it's a very, s- another part of the story that has um, just emerged within the last few years. Yeah. So you have found these like documents and some of these stories that have otherwise kind of disappeared right and yeah or or just I would say are just emerging you know just like news stories come out all the time about history I think it's only one that's beginning to be understood and it's being written as we speak like people are writing books as we speak on it but there isn't a lot of great information about it so yeah and is this, was it a site that was on your radar before coming to Teachers College? <laughs> Not at all. I mean, I, I mean, I do this work as a, as a fourth generation Japanese American whose grandparents, my mother, they were in one of these concentration camps, but they were in one in Arkansas. So, I mean, I obviously was familiar with the history of the camps from my family. I knew this had happened and I'd always taken a lot of interest in it. Even I, I mean, if it's not just I as someone who, like, has read all... I mean, all the complexities of it, of, like, how... Like, this one camp where all these political dissidents were were concentrated. It was really, like, shocking to learn this, actually. And I learned about it from a friend of mine who does, like, Asian-American political activism. She's been involved with this site. So um, that's how I learned about it, really, through a friend. And so, I mean, it's like kind of a crazy thing because if it like somebody who already has a kind of deep personal history doesn't understand this history like how do you help the public writ writ large even wrap their minds around the complexity and the bureaucratic density (laughs) the utter bureaucratic density of these sites that were like just absolutely like mind-boggling levels of complicated things happen there and i i don't know yeah yeah there's there's also these these questions i mean thinking about the other sites that you're looking at in at the same time like with Guantanamo and the state of terror like i i mean do you feel like it's a um, the six there's some successes in that you've seen in in focusing on the site in that the seeing books being written about it and actually being involved with people that are making um, the educational material or helping to think about the public presentation. Yeah, and I mean, I'll just say this before I answer your question to the best I can, but um, 
oh man, it's like, it is, if you've ever tried to listen to a, um, a news briefing with like Donald Rumsfeld, I'm talking about what was happening in Iraq. It's like, you know what I mean? It's just like these layers of just ambiguous language and circuitous logic. It's just like, I kind of liken the loyalty questionnaire that, that was issued to Japanese American in those same terms. I mean, it was like this sort of absurd attempt by the government to like already imprison a population and be like, well, let's let's figure out if they're loyal, and let <laughs> because that's important to us. Um, we want to figure out of these prisoners who's the disloyal people. Um, and so, I mean, it's, it is, it's like an utterly mind-boggling thing. So for me, I study teaching and learning, right? So I'm, I'm always curious, like, how do you help people, yeah, unpack these very complicated histories? How do you help people unpack a state of terror that is intentionally confusing? I mean, it is like absolutely, it is in intentionally confusing and that the government really doesn't want us to know what they are doing at Guantanamo. Mm -hmm. well, it's amazing how... You seem to have this healthy dose of uh, humor about it. <laughs> like I'm so impressed because it seems <laughs> well. It just seems like <laughs> such a daunting challenge, and to feel also probably the personal connection of you know sharing like you did thinking of your um, you said three generations back. You know we're in one of in, in the site and in California and it's in one of the, or sorry, in the detention camp. And, yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> it's it, how, how do you stay motivated? Yeah. I mean, I think I, I that's funny. I, I never, I always think of like having a sense of humor about a very dark topic is a healthy thing, but I, I just, um, I mean, I think Japanese Americans, when we, especially when we listen to like Donald Trump's speeches on, Barring Muslims. I mean, literally, like, all of us are just like, this is, like, exactly what happened to our great, our grandparents. Like, exactly mm -hmm. the kind of, and then this need for, like, Muslim Americans to be like, but we're such good Americans. We sign up for the military. You know, it's like a very, it, it is like seeing those repetitions, and there is a kind of really dark humor to it. And I think, um, but it's also very, it's uh, compel, uh, it compels us to do the work, right? Um, and so, I mean, I do this, I think, I think mostly out of, in obligation to my grandparents and my mother and, and the kind of, um, the really like deep suffering that these being in a detention camp, it was only a small part of their lives, right? Like three years, but I can say without any doubt that it, it shaped them irreparably, irreparably. They, um, no, I don't think they ever recovered. And I think my mom is affected in ways that, um, you know, they just, they were very, I, they losing everything. And I think being forced to leave your home, I think is, you know, like any, anyone who is a refugee. I mean, it really like, I think it's so hard to pick up the pieces and it's still felt, I think, even in the generations later. So I think that, that keeps me motivated to come back and do this research. Yeah. And it seems like s incredibly valuable that you're willing to go into thinking about the public's uh, entrance into these spaces also who might be coming with no knowledge of it for an immersive experience or um, bringing people into such a site as, as the one that you mentioned in California. Are these things that you're thinking about? Oh yeah, and it's, um, so I got to spend a, a lot of time 
with the National Park Service who manages the site, and I'm sure you, everyone is familiar with the site of the National Park Service employees. They wear those <laughs> green and tanned khakis, and they have the hats. Um, but literally, like these are these people that are working at this in this very rural town in um, Northern California called Newell, where the camp existed um, in the 1940s. And there's not very much there. It's like fields, a lot of like mint and potato fields. And um, it's just a farming community um, and has a lot of migrant workers. Um, but if you look very closely, and this is what the challenge of the park service is, if you have the kind of train your eye, you can see remnants of the camp everywhere. So there's a very... Um, uh, there's a little neighborhood called the Flying Goose Lodges, and it looks like on the surface some very run-down old houses that people are living in. But in fact, these were the buildings that the administration lived in during the years of the camp. And um, the Park Service uh, takes the public on, in its tours uh, to some of these remnants of the camp, and they have the public walk around and, and kind of they point out things. So they take the public on one of the big stops on the tour to this... Um, uh, this kind of flat area on the ground where there's a foundation and there's all these little holes in the ground. And what it is, is it, it was the latrine in the camp and there was no like separation between the stalls. It was just like literally rows of toilets, even for w women and men. And um, the latrine essentially is the first stop on this tour of which the public learns. So you literally start there. Um, and they... Are really the huge challenge of the work is to take people to a remnants and, and make them feel um, that they can envision that there was a camp that held 20,000 people. So, and it's, and again, it's an enormous pedagogical challenge, but I, I think they are, I admire the Park Service a lot because I think they actually do some incredible work. They bring kind of photos of the camp and they ask you to kind of look around. They tell stories of the people who are in the camp. Um, so, I mean, yeah, that's that's kind of what they do to help the public immerse. But a lot of it is how do you negotiate the absence of the camp mm -hmm. with what today, with what had been there. Um, and uh, for me, that's a lot of what I've been writing about, actually, is the role of absence, actually, in teaching us about places where very, like, not in, these weren't death camps, but they were like, uh, I mean, they were like, prison camps I mean the, the conditions there were very harsh um so yeah it, it is like um it is it's like almost like how do you grasp this this haunted landscape mm -hmm. yeah and you probably I don't know how you hold both the public holding it for those that don't have the knowledge and also for those that do have experiences from being there whether it's generational or um directly from hearing stories already and I don't know if you have if they feel kind of the needs are are different or whether they feel like two different audiences oh yeah and um part of my research is studying kind of both I study the historic site which has a lot of people who are just driving by in their RVs and they see a sign that there's a historic site and they pull over and they're like what this and the ranger kind of has to be like well did you know you know and he that's kind of the conversation starts with very like you know did you know this happened um and people are very interested in it. i actually like was so fascinated by the random visitors that came in they're like really really and they say we didn't learn this in school 
So, I mean, people have a real curiosity about it. I mean, I really, I, I was happy to see that. It was very comforting, actually. <laughs> uh, um, versus I also researched the work of, of former prisoners to come back to this place because they do every two years, a very tightly organized group of Japanese Americans return to Tulu Lake to honor the memory of their ancestors and, and to c commemorate it. And it's called the Tulu Lake Pilgrimage. And yes, it is very different, the needs of a very general audience versus the people who have some sort of blood tie or some sort of tie, intimate tie to this place. And what you see, and I'll just give a concrete example, is that when people whose grandparents were uh, in this camp, they tend to like look into the landscape and they say, oh, where was my mom? Which block? Which they called these like rows of barracks blocks and they're like which block they were in block 42 where was that and the park service will be like oh it's over there it's you know look over there let's look on a map so they want to emplace themselves on the same places that their ancestors were so there's this idea that they would walk tread the same way places that their parents or grandparents were that becomes a part of the healing i think mm -hmm. and the uh, reckoning with one's past yeah so it sounds like when the absence, like there's some places, it's so fascinating to this element of how it's sort of an oral um, transmitting of knowledge, it sounds like, rather than kind of arriving to the site and there's a, a clear, like maybe there's a map, but instead of the seeing this structure that's in place that you can read about what happened here, it's sort of self-guided in a way and that the the parks guides are there to fill in information but people could go in and explore the site on their own is that right yeah I mean uh, not right now because it's a very young national park and um it you know actually it's very slow work creating a national park um, very, very slow. So there's like fences around kind of the the historic buildings that the Park Service manages. Like there's actually a jail too that's one of the last standing structures. And it was it's made of concrete and it just, you know, essentially because it's made of concrete, it lasted all these decades. But that's a building that the Park Service does kind of is trying to restore. And then um, they have like a big kind of chain link fence around it. And it's locked, and there's like a historic plaque, and you can kind of drive it to the plaque and read it. But you can only go in with a ranger at this point. But I think the idea is that the long term, yeah, there'll be like a visitor center with like a, an exhibit. And if you go to Manzanar, which is one of the other concentration camps that's in the eastern Sierras in California, they have like a really fully like formed visitors center. So, yeah, I think it's, it's for the long term, it will have something where people can have much greater access to it. But will they ever recreate the whole camp in its entirety? N no, I, I think they have to deal with the, what's left, the remnants, yeah. What's a good job that it's doing and where it can do a lot better, kind of the struggles with working with the parks or um, what's, what's the, what can be doing better for, for such sites as that? I think one thing that the National Park Service has done really well is they uh, and this was very new to me because I, I had no idea this is what happens when a national historic site is designated and the process of actually making it a park where people can visit it's very slow but it's also a very thorough process 
So they've done a great job, I think, having public meetings all over um, mostly the West Coast, because that's where most of the stakeholders are located, but in multiple cities. And people gather and they ask you, they ask the public, like, what do you want this to be? And a lot of people who are Japanese American attend these meetings and they say, oh, this is what I want to see. And I think that's such a remarkable thing to for them to elicit that kind of public feedback. But they do, and it's all available online. They have to post everything. So, I mean, I will say, like, I kind of am, like, pleasantly surprised by the amount of input that they've been that they take and the kind of collaborations they do with the Japanese American community has been actually really like, uh, yeah, yeah, really like, um, not joyful. That's the wrong word. It's, uh, very collaborative. Yeah. 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 And, um, one thing I'm curious about is the, knowing the political descendants that were there, do you feel like those stories would be part of the immersive learning or part of the teaching for the public eventually or now? Yeah, I mean, I think part of their mission with this site, one of the big, they call them interpretive themes, is um, having to talk about what is the meaning of dissent? What does it mean to um, be loyal? What does it mean to be patriotic? And trying to shift those conversations to um, this idea that to be loyal doesn't mean you, you you have to have fealty to your government. To be, in fact, the enactment of civil rights sometimes is that you contest them and that you poke holes in them and that you raise questions. And I think these prisoners really, really poked a lot of holes into constitutionality and what the meaning of the U.S. Constitution even is because uh, it's about can a government imprison its own citizens um, can the government ask things like that? Like, are you loyal? Can you give up your citizenship to the, you know, it's like all these, all these kind of questions. And I think that's, that's what the challenge is in educating. And I, I think that's a relevant story to every one of us, really, mm-hmm. not just to this particular community who were uh, targeted, but that at any point, any of us could really, really, really be a victim of this kind of, um, exceptional law yeah it's makes me want to go into your work at guantanamo bay but (laughs) i feel like um we might have to save it for another (laughs) (laughs) conversation um how are things unfolding now and what's the the timeline like for your research all right (laughs) um i I am wrapping things up. If my advisors are listening, um, I, I'm I'm finishing the writing, and um, and th- and that means essentially writing about the things that I observed and collected. I did um, about forty interviews with people involved with the planning and design of these different places of exception, and um, so kind of saying, okay, what are the big takeaways from how you create these places so they become learning sites um so i should be finished uh i should be finished with this by this coming may may of 2017 (laughs) (laughs) um well it's it's been yeah like you said a lot that you've poured into this for seven years and it's um a lot can happen in a year but that's that's exciting that it's it's uh, coming up, and thank you for sharing about your your work. And it's wonderful to have you here in the station. 
Thank you, Meredith, for inviting me. It was such a treat. The music for this show was written and composed by Kevin Johnston and is titled Kingdom Stowaway. <laughs>